0: You know, I guess one thing that, that I would point out um, and that we're having more of an awareness of these days is colonialism and slavery and that being part of the history of coffee and that we're well past hopefully moving away from that and also having an awareness that that's part of the history. From Mumble Coffee, this is Coffee 101, a show about Well, coffee. I'm Kenneth Thomas, and every week my coffee friends and I are bringing you the absolute best coffee education you can find out there in the Coffee-verse. If you're new to the show, do me a favor, go back and start at episode one. That's going to be where you build your base and learn from there so that you can be a coffee ninja. Today on the show, I'm joined by my good friend Rob Hoes, and before we get to him, I had a fairly, I thought fairly simple question: Where does coffee come from? So, I just went to the streets first, and uh, we just asked people, "Where does coffee come from?" The heavens, the Lord, and <laughs> coffee beans, <laughs> Starbucks, <laughs> coffee beans. <laughs> Beans, Africa, Colombia, that's all I got on that one. (laughs) From all over the world, and I'm glad it does, because we get to drink all kinds of different coffees.
1: Beans, my friend. Beans.
0: All right, so we got a bunch of different answers there. So, my friend, Rob, how are you, sir? Doing well. Excellent. So... I have Rob on because he really, I mean, he's been to or what we call origin in, in the coffee industry, going to the actual farms, um, probably multiple places, I would say, around the world, right?
1: Yeah, that's accurate.
0: Yeah, and I know Rob from, in general, I would say the, the coffee roasting world. Now, he is not going to toot his own horn, but... He is a phenomenal roaster and roaster educator. And uh, that's where that's where I came to know him. He actually taught me everything I know about roasting. Um, kind of used that with Humble Coffee. And today we're going to talk about the coffee farm and what, what that really looks like and what that means. So, Rob, tell me, like, what does it actually look like as far as boots on the ground? I mean, it's not, you know, like... The U.S., obviously.
1: Yeah, there's a wide amount of variety when it comes to coffee farms and what they can look like. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people have more of the idea in their head of the kind of small uh, plot holder. So small coffee farmer, um, you know, and some of those views are accurate. You know, there is a lot of poverty in coffee growing areas. Um, It is kind of remnant of colonialism yeah uh in terms of the the life that people are leading when they're farming coffee um, but it goes all the way up to these incredible resort looking coffee processing facilities that have you know multiple houses on them tons of equipment really really large scale production and so that's the thing is like you know a coffee farmer might only own a few acres or they might actually own an incredible large plot in which they're coffee and be very industrialized and mechanized. So it's kind of hard to say which one you'll experience with each coffee, but, um, you know, you'll have the whole gamut in, in all producing countries as well.
0: That's, that's what I was going to ask is, so when you say the whole gamut, do you think that there is like in between as far as from those smallholders holders? And then the big ones, or or is it just like, does it tend to be like one, what I would call extreme, and the other?
1: No, it's definitely everywhere in between. So, I mean, you'll have everything from people, you know, harvesting coffee. Like, for example, harvesting coffee in Ethiopia, where they don't even necessarily own the trees. They're just part of the forest. They go yeah. out, they collect coffee, they dry it on their land, and then they take it to a uh, uh, basically a coffee distribution station where it's then grouped together. Um, Or if it's a wash process coffee, they won't dry it themselves. They'll just uh, take it to the washing station. So it's kind of like, you know, one of the ways that Emily McIntyre of Catalyst Coffee uh, describes it, which I think is great is it's like, imagine you had like 10 plum trees in your backyard or something. Yeah. And there's a place where you could drop them off and get paid for it. For some coffee producers, it's that small. Uh, For other coffee producers, um, you know, it could be kind of a medium sized venture where they've got a number of acres, maybe even a couple farms and they've got a really uh, kind of rudimentary processing facility where they can do all the processing on their own um, all the way to, like I said, really, really large. So it, it goes the whole distance. So it's not just like super poor, small coffee farmers to super wealthy, large coffee farmers. There's really kind of everywhere in between.
0: Gotcha. And um, I guess Maybe even tell tell me and tell our tell our one on oneers out there, where all have you been as far as um uh, origins and and um uh, I guess seeing the like literally where the coffee comes from.
1: Yeah, so I've visited with coffee producers in Guatemala, Brazil, Kenya, uh and Costa Rica. Okay I think those are the main places where I visited actual coffee farms. Um, yeah.
0: yeah And tell me a little more and tell our to our listeners uh, I guess about the housing. I know we talked about and, and I would anticipate it may be the same thing as far as like it can be as simplistic of a house as as is possible all the way to you know maybe maybe it is a lot larger scale.
1: Yeah. And so the housing wise, you get everything from, you know, one of the coffee farmers that I was had the pleasure of working with uh, early on uh, their house was made of corrugated metal and um, some wood posts. It was pretty open air. Um, You know, they eventually were able to build a home out of cinder block, which was awesome. So they now have a, a concrete home. Uh, after years of working on specialty copies, so that they've been able to kind of upgrade there. But you'll, you'll have everything from like people living in, in those kind of more open air, um, expose the elements sort of uh, like, you know, housing to people that own houses that are just absolutely gorgeous, right. uh, immaculate houses by anyone's standard. Um, those, I guess, I'm thinking of more in Brazil. Uh, some of my experiences in Brazil have been with these. Incredible homes uh, and like palatial, like estates, sort right. of thing. But
0: and, and a good chunk of, but not all, for sure. But a good chunk of uh, coffee production is in uh, Brazil. Um, and you talk, you talk very briefly at the beginning about the colonialism. Um, and uh, you know, I guess one thing that that I would point out, um, and that we're having more of an awareness of um, these days is colonialism and slavery um, with that uh, and, and that being part of the history of coffee um, and that we're starting to, uh, well, we, we're well past hopefully moving away from that and also having an awareness that that's part of the history.
1: Yeah, and and while we're moving away from perhaps uh, you know what people would see as like bonafide like actual slave holding, yeah, um, the 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 effects of colonialism continue uh, with the price of coffee and stuff like that. So most coffee producers are paid extremely little for their coffee. Some of them operate at a loss year over year. Some of them barely scrape by um, and rely on other products that they're growing to try and help cover that. And so there, the after effects of it, even if, you know, there's less forced labor. And, you know, as we know, even living in the States, there's there's forced labor. And then there's people who work for less than they should be making because they have to. Right. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, that's probably the primary thing that people are, are experiencing now. Well,
0: and I just had um, a great interview, a recent past episode with John Lawrence with Mudhouse. House coffee roasters in Charlottesville, Virginia. And, um, you know, we talked about specialty coffee and what does specialty coffee mean? And one of the things that we talked about was um, that there is an, uh, we strive for uh, a sustainability and an and, and equity and an enjoyment for everybody um, in that chain uh, from the farmer, miller, exporter, importer, roaster. Barista and ultimately the the consumer, and so yeah, there's definitely an awareness there, and I and I think a move towards um, hopefully making it enjoyable for the coffee farmer, because and again, this is my opinion, but if it's not sustainable, not enjoyable for the coffee farmer, then all of a sudden we don't have coffee, because I mean nobody wants to do it.
1: Yeah. And, and those have been cycles that we've gone through uh, with the volatility of the market is market goes really low. People pull up all their coffee plants, start planting something else. Coffee becomes a little bit more scarce. Market goes high. Everybody replants coffee. And, you know, so we, we definitely have seen those kind of uh, trends in the past as well. And, you know, the thing is, I think specialty coffee is often touted as being kind of the thing that saves coffee farmers by giving them better pricing and, and, you know, we're definitely paying more than uh, commodity coffee, right. for sure. Uh, but there's still ways to go Yeah, uh, before we're actually at a, a sustainable price point. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with consumer education, which is why it's kind of great that you're doing this. Because when people know the complexity that exists in the coffee supply chain and how much work is actually has to be done, um, they understand why people are going to keep asking for a little bit higher price point with it. Uh, and hopefully, eventually, we're able to get the price point up to something that's actually sustainable for the coffee farmers in, in the long run.
0: Right. Yeah. When um, I think it was when coffee hit Europe or more specifically England in the beginning, and this was a couple of uh, centuries ago, uh, the equivalent price was somewhere in the $30 mid 30s range. For the equivalent of a cup of coffee, um, which we would be like, you know, no way, we would never pay that much. Um, but they have in the past. Um, luckily now, um, hopefully we can appreciate that it's only, you know, two fifty, three dollars, something like that for a cup of drip coffee, depending on where you are. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's something. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Rob about leaf rust, and other kinds of challenges that we see at Origin. Did you know that coffee is actually more nuanced than wine? Crazy, right? Looking to level up your coffee game? There is no better combination than Coffee 101 and Humble Coffee. Learn all you need to know about coffee and put it to work with Humble Coffee, who sources the best beans from around the world to optimize the cup of coffee you get for the taste quality and for the health benefits. It's going to be a cup that you should be able to drink black. If you can drink it black, and we're not knocking you if you don't, but if you can drink it black, then you will avoid that coffee crash later from the sugars and the creamers, and you'll just be able to get more done. So if you're looking for a coffee that tastes great and that can get you through the day to crush all of your goals Choose Humble Coffee to fuel you in all of your endeavors. You can check them out by going to HumbleCoffee.com or click in the link in the show notes below. Okay, we're back. Rob, tell me about some other challenges that we see at Origin. Um, Maybe obviously start with like disease. You know, we can talk about Brazil a couple years ago.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, leaf rust, uh, which you mentioned, is, is one of them. It's a fungus that attacks the leaves of the coffee plant and not only harms the plant, but makes it less productive uh, if it doesn't kill the plant altogether. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, coffee takes about three to five years to start producing fruit in a meaningful way. And so when you start to lose your trees, it's not as easy as just replanting and having it come back the next year. It's, it's a bit of an investment. Um, so, coffee leaf rust is is definitely a huge issue. Uh, there are some ways to deal with it, but they're mostly chemically oriented. And you know, most people would rather not have to deal with chemicals if they can help it. Part of it because of their own health. Part of it because it costs money. Um, so that that so. that
0: brings me to another good question. Um, tell me, I mean, we have the. The different certifications, and you know, like organic and fair trade and direct trade and all that kind of stuff. um, Have you seen where farms are like the equivalent of, say, organic, but they can't necessarily at this time afford the official certification, but they're just not using chemicals because they don't have the money to use chemicals?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, organic certification is tough and kind of all over the board. So you definitely will see coffee farmers who don't use pesticides or, uh, fungicides because they can't afford them. Um, so they are functionally organic. Um, you will see coffee producers who, uh, have a organic certification that don't necessarily follow organic practices when no one's around. Yeah. Um you will see pretty much everything. And and the organic certification is tough, too, because, you know, in talking with certifying bodies, you say, like, okay, well, what's the difference between roasted conventional coffee and and roasted organic coffee? Um, And their response is, well, we don't really know. Yeah. Um, Their idea is that they are certifying that the coffee has limited opportunity to commingle with non-certified coffee. That's pretty much it on, on the roasting side in particular. And, you know, because you're processing coffee at, you know, 400 to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. And so a lot of things burn off. That's very true. That's very true. So there's there's no real knowledge, you know, that that I am aware of in terms of the difference between organic certified and conventional coffees in terms of the actual pesticides that make it to the end user. Uh, the difference would be that they would be monitoring their practices at the farm level. And so you're reducing those chemical inputs there. Now there are organic approved things, which may not be the most pleasant to use. So for example, as opposed to using a fungicide, the organic certified thing that they can use to fight leaf rust is basically a copper spray. So you're Mm -hmm. adding a lot of copper into the environment, which Right. may or may not be great but it's right. considered organic certified and so they're allowed to use it on certified farms it's all just really tough like uh, you know for any of your listeners who work in uh you know any sort of uh farming right. they'll know this that yeah. it's, it's not a simple clear-cut thing so the best thing you can do is have healthy plants Right, And if you keep your plants healthy, they'll tend to fight disease better on their own. Yeah, And then you try and minimize your inputs anyway, because you want to keep your costs down and because you want to keep your environment, you know, as, as clean and, and nice as you can, because you have to live on it. So, um, but yeah, so leaf rust is definitely one. Um, another one that, you know, kind of dances around with that organic certification thing, too, is how do you deal with uh, the coffee beetle? So yeah. there's a, a small beetle that bores into coffee cherries. So that's,
0: that's the coffee borer, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, they call it broca in Spanish, right? Okay. So there are ways to deal with that. You know, pesticides would be the traditional conventional way. Um, but other places you see them using alcohol traps. Um you see them just trap people too. Different kind of alcohol, yes. (laughs) You're going there. Um you know, you'll see them using, there's a, a particular fungus that attacks the brain stem of the broca. So they use the fungus ah, to, okay. that way. And then there's a, another wasp. And when you say wasp, everybody thinks big, it's really small. It looks like a a, a, a gnat. Yeah. But there's another uh, wasp that actually attacks the larva of the broca. And so some farms, they're releasing this wasp in certain sections yeah. of their, their plantation in order to attack the larval stage. Um, so there's definitely a lot of ways to deal with that also. But so coffee beetle broca is one, leaf rust is another. Um, there's coffee cherry disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's certain diseases uh, in Rwanda, like the potato defect that people have to worry about. And potato and, defect is particularly difficult.
0: And for our one-on-oneers out there, uh, potato defect, which Rob is talking about, y- you cannot pick up when you're... Um, looking at green coffee itself um, you would pick it up in the actual roasted cup um, whether that's the importer or whatever and um, it only takes a bean to basically make it all um, kind of have that um, potato defect and I'll let you kind of describe what that what that actually tastes and smells like because I have never I have never tasted or smelled it myself.
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll say first for clarification, the, the good thing is the one bean only messes up what you brew with it. So if you right. have one bean-coffee bean, it's not going to make the whole bag taste of potato. Right. Um, but if it gets roasted, ground, and brewed, it'll make the entire pot of coffee taste like a raw cut potato was put into the coffee, which is a very alarming uh, flavor profile to have with yeah. your coffee. Um, and, we so see, that,
0: and we see yeah. that out of, uh, is it Rwanda? And we're
1: Rwanda in... and uh, Burundi, and a little bit in Congo now. Okay. Um, it's carried by a insect once again, um, so
0: yeah. And what about um, h- tell us who, like males, females, young, old, like in these different origins who who is actually picking. The coffee, who is doing uh, processing, you know, at the meal? Um, what What does this look like? How does the how do families, uh, you know, affect uh, things versus it just being a a traditional work structure like we're used to?
1: Yeah. So you'll see kind of I mean, all over the stuff. There's everything from from migrant workers who are just moving around the country. Um, a lot of times it'll be groups of men who go and pick sugar cane during part of the year and pick coffee during another part of the year. Okay. And they live in uh, dormitories essentially, or little apartments on the coffee farms. For larger coffee farms in particular, um, you'll have families that are doing it. So if, if it's a family-run uh, coffee field, they'll be out there picking. And you know, uh, if you're doing manual picking, you're probably going through three to five times during the course of the harvest season collecting the ripe cherries. Yeah, men, women, children. You know, and and that's the other difficult part is like sometimes you'll see a kid out in the field. It's like, well, this doesn't feel right. Um, But they're actually not out there because it's forced child labor or anything like that. They're out there because they're on summer break from school because most schools take off during harvest season.
0: Okay.
1: And their parents are like, do we leave them at home while we're gone to get into mischief or do we have them accompany us into the field? Right. Right. Uh, Which is safer. Right. Yeah, exactly. A lot of them will choose to actually take their kid with them into the field to pick coffee. Yeah. And uh, so it's like, child labor, bad, I agree. Uh, Complicated, also yes, right? Yeah, Yeah. um, well that's
0: cool, it's very different in in some of these other countries. Like I have not, like I said, I've not been to origin, but I have been to uh, countries in the uh, kind of coffee belt, including uh, Trinidad, and they could easily grow coffee there and, and I'd be fascinated uh, at some point to actually have some coffee from there. but um, yeah, it was just it's a different it's a different world as far as how they live versus how we live. And one thing that really just shocked me to the bone was they were happy. you know they they were happy and they had way less just physical stuff. Uh, you know, compared to what we have here. Um, and it just kind of put me in my place um, as as far as what my expectations and my demands are and and what they probably really should be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tough because people all over the world are finding ways to find joy in their day-to-day life. And they are generally all, you know, it's all good people. I know that a lot of times like people like, yeah, my mom, who I love dearly, find the rest of the world to be kind of scary. Yeah. It's not that way, right? Like, yeah. it's full of people just like us. Yeah. Who are trying to end their life. Right. And, and do the best they can for their kids. Uh, and so you see that everywhere, really.
0: Right. And that's a good point. And I think that's part of just an inherent goodness in all of us. I think that's just that's just part of human nature. Um, and so you're right, uh, it's not something to be scared of and, uh, and you'll, you'll find good people anywhere. So tell me a little bit about processing. Uh, we will have an episode, uh, probably multiple episodes cause it's kind of complicated and there's a tons of ways. There are tons of ways to do it on processing coffee, but, but tell me about the mills and, and what that structure looks like.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, coffee gets processed, uh, any number of different ways. So once again, kind of keeping to the idea of the scale of large to small, smallholder producers will have very various different ways in which they can process the coffee. Uh, some of them, like in Africa, will choose to do natural process. Uh, natural process used to be called dry process until dry process got kind of... Uh, looped together with the idea of commodity coffee because a lot of commodity coffee was dry press yeah. dry process. So it went through a rebranding and was now called natural process, which right. sounds a lot so, better.
0: Yeah. It sounds hipper, the natural process. Right. So
1: that's basically when you dry the seeds inside the fruit, you just pick the fruit, dry it, and then mill the seeds out later. Uh, and you know, that is chosen because it doesn't really need much water. It doesn't need much infrastructure. If you have tarps or if you just have a patio, you just lay the coffee out, let it dry in the sun over the course of you know a couple of weeks to a month, and then bag it up and take it to the dry mill. Uh, yeah. The dry mill deals with coffee that's already been dried. The wet mill deals with coffee that's yet to be dried. So a lot of people do it that way. Um, you'll also have a lot of people in Latin America that don't do any processing, and not just Latin America, but everywhere. They'll pick coffee and they'll take the cherry that day. To the mill, or they'll uh, sell it to local what they call coyote, yeah, uh, which are usually people that are just wealthy enough to own a truck, yeah, and they'll buy it from the coffee farmers right then for whatever the street price is. And it's you know, coffee is a legal drug in that sense; it has a street price, yeah. Um, but you know, they'll pay whatever the street price is right then, yeah. And then the people with the truck will drive it to a nearby mill where they'll sell it then to the mill owner. Um, and so there's very little transparency for those lots cause it's it just depends on who the Coyote bought it from yeah. and you don't really know where, uh, he sells it to the mill and that's it. Right. Um, you'll have people that have minor processing. So, uh, when I first uh, went to visit uh, coffee producing country, I went to Guatemala mm-hmm. for my very first trip. This is back in 2009, maybe 2008 right? earlier. Don't remember. Anyway, um, Julio, the farmer who I worked with and stayed with, he was doing everything in his backyard. So he had a hand crank depulper where he just would crank it and that would depulp the coffee. He yeah. had 55 gallon plastic drums for his fermentation tanks. Yeah. He was fermenting it right then. And then he was taking it to friends and family members all around to dry it on whatever open space that he had. One of his cousins had like a little soccer field in his backyard. Some of them had flat rooftops. And so he was just kind of making it work doing, you know, whatever he could to, to get it done. So you've got people that are very industrious like that. Um, small scale milling, uh, is a thing usually where cooperatives will work together to purchase equipment, to do the milling. And it'll be like central stored warehouse and so the cooperative will all bring their coffee in and they'll have mill managers who are running it. There are also large independently run mills where people can just bring coffee to, or, uh, oftentimes, uh, kind of large estate coffees, Right. Uh, that will accept coffees from the community to, to mill and sell as community lots. Um, yeah, so natural process is one. Uh, the other most common is washed processed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wash process basically goes through a step of fermentation to remove the fruit mucilage layer from the outside of the um, seed. So there's a fruit pectin layer attached to the outside of the parchment skin. To remove that, they just let it sit, uh, usually for eight to 16 hours, either covered with water or just in a big dry pile. Over time, uh, basically the yeasts that are in the environment will work to break down that sugar, and it will basically start to pull away from the seed. And once that happens, then they will wash the coffee with water to remove the rest of the fruit pectin layer, and then they just dry it in the parchment skin by itself. So that's the other major one you'll see worldwide. I do have a question
0: that I legitimately don't know the answer to. Um, I know all the stuff up up through there. This is just my curiosity. How does it get out of the parchment? Like because like the bean is is in this really, it's almost like a hard shell. Um, sometimes you'll see it if if you're a roaster and you get green beans in every once in a while you'll see one in parchment and it's a very different, very distinct layer. How do they how do they get that thing off?
1: That's the dry mill. So okay. they, they actually cut the miller that It's set at a certain gap. Uh, It basically cracks the outer shell. Yeah, Yeah.
0: that makes sense. Okay, cool. And you totally segued into our next um, couple of episodes. So, 101ers, you'll have to listen. We're going to talk about the coffee tree, and we're going to talk about the coffee bean. So, fancy words that Rob was using here, like uh, parchment and pulp and mucilage and stuff like that, um, we will dive deep into um, and you know, a couple of, couple of notes or things I was thinking while while Rob was talking. One is you have to appreciate when you see that a single origin coffee that you got from your um, local coffee shop was from an actual farm or from an actual farmer. That is a challenging process to pull that off. Um, so appreciate that your cup doesn't, you know, cost $30 because, you know, it is it is a it is a process and a challenge because you even have to, this is getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but you're even looking at stuff like how do you separate that that out as far as exporting and importing? And it's it's different. Um, the other thing I would say to point out, well, two more things. One is The smaller the lot does not necessarily mean that it is by default a better bean. You can have some fantastic coffees that are produced in in massive mills and come from multiple farmers um, in one area. And then the other thing is if you've never tried a natural processed or the old term dry processed uh, coffee, You need to seek one out. Um, It's not hard to find. If you can't find it from your local coffee shop, uh, just look online. Um, It it should be pretty easy to find. Um, And uh, it's going to taste different than what you're used to, which is usually traditionally washed coffees as far as what people are used to.
1: Yeah, well, and naturals in particular from Ethiopia uh, are often people's gateway drugs because it's just like, Holy cow, this tastes like strawberry, like the bag says. And yeah. it's, you know, you know, it's like, a very flavor profile.
0: Yeah, you're like looking at the bag and you're like, shut up. Look yeah. at that. And it's and like, actually I taste it. I remember I remember Rob the first time that um uh I had a subscription to this thing called Angel's Cup, and we'll link it in the show notes where you can try different coffees in little sample sizes, and they would put like tasting notes or flavor notes on there. And I remember the first time that I fully got like what they were actually saying was in the cup. I was driving. I remember exactly where I was. I remember the road. I remember the stoplight. And and I, I like literally, I'm not kidding you. I pulled over on the side of the road and I like did this fist pump like to myself, like on the side of the road, you know, just because I was like, I, I get it. Like, Like I actually get what they're talking about.
1: Yeah. And something you said that I kind of want to flip for people too, is like appreciating how much effort goes into coffee. Like if we go start to finish real quick, right? So you've got a farmer who owns land, who plants coffee that doesn't see any income from that coffee for three to five years. So he's got three to five years He or She has three to five years of investment in fertilizing, whether it's compost or not. Making sure that they're watered, making sure they're pruned, keeping pests and everything off of them, keeping funguses off of them. You've got, once they get to maturity and start producing coffee fruit, you're either picking it yourself by hand, which isn't exactly an easy process because you're also usually on the slope of a mountainside. It's not just like this pristine flat uh, sort of place to harvest or you're hiring people to help you pick. Then once the coffee gets picked, it has to be processed pretty much immediately yeah. Uh, the longer it sits in the fruit, the more of a chance it's going to ferment and, and cause some really off flavors in the coffee. So you usually need to get it to processing that night or start the drying process that night. So the coffee is taken to whatever processing happens. And if they're doing it themselves, it's very labor intensive. And if they're having someone else do it, they're having to pay for that um, or they're getting paid a lot less so that right. someone will take it from them and do it. So then it goes through steps of drying, milling sorting, uh, based on defect, sorting based on screen size, sorting Mm -hmm. based on density, then it's all packaged up. Oh, after it dries though, it has to rest for three months, but or two to two, three months, by the way, so that it all kind of chills out. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, then they're tasting it. They're putting it into lots. They're selling it to exporters. If the exporter hasn't already gotten hold of it, those are then selling it to importers once the sale is made, then they have to figure out international logistics through shipping containers, usually involving different governments, a lot of paperwork, yeah. a lot of back and forth. Gets to the importer stateside, then the importer has to send out samples, wait for approval, finally get someone to decide that they want to buy it. And then that person buys it, they organize it with the trucking company, and the trucking company takes that shipment over to where it's finally roasted it's not done fully automatically. Most, most cases you got someone roasting the coffee manually, someone bagging the coffee manually, um, putting all the stickers on it, everything like it's an, it's a human touch process the whole way through for most coffee. Um, So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And there's so many places that it can break down. Like a couple, I was thinking just while you were talking, well, a couple of things I was thinking while you were talking is, is, and you may have said this, but, a lot, not all, but a lot of these coffees are hand-picked. And so, I mean, it takes, like one coffee cherry will produce two coffee beans or coffee seeds, and that's not counting all the ones you throw out because um, they have a defect or things like that. And it takes, you know, a bunch of seeds to make your cup of coffee. Um, Another random thing I was thinking about was these importers have to work with, Sometimes, like you said, unstable governments, and it may take bribes or whatever you want to call it to basically un get your coffee unstuck. That is like you know at you know the the exporters um, like at their port. So it's mm-hmm. not easy.
1: No, it's not. And, and what you're speaking to also there's a lot of water content loss and weight loss. Right. So. It's usually by a power of five to six. So if you harvest five or six pounds of coffee cherries, you end up with one to one pound pound of.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Five, you know? Yeah. So, Well, listen, Rob, we enjoyed having you on the show today. Tell everybody where they can find you.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, my website is hosts.coffee. And um, I run a roasting subscription box set where it's basically like how to Learn how to do weird stuff with a coffee roasting machine, yeah. Uh, which is iteration.coffee.
0: Yeah, and iteration is really cool because, especially for you roasters or would be roasters out there, or even uh, coffee shops who are looking for nuances in ways that you can make your coffee better, Rob does a fantastic job with iteration coffee. In that, and, and this has been, I mean, this has been his life's work as far as coffee roasting goes, is figuring out what you can do at different points in roasting coffee to bring out different attributes of of the coffee because for a 101ers you may have no idea I mean this may blow your mind but that same green bean can can taste a like infinite uh, amount of, of different um, I guess taste' is the simplest way to put it Um, and that's where the roaster, who is one part of the process, comes in. So Iteration Coffee, we'll make sure and put that in um, the uh, show notes as well as Rob's uh, website, and um, he does a little consulting on the side, and like I said, I've I've, uh, I've had him help me, and uh, it has upped Humble Coffee's level as far as uh, quality, which we're all about.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Have a good day. See you okay i don't know about y'all but i learned a lot and that was fun speaking with my friend rob and um he he is he is a guy who um genuinely loves what he does and he loves coffee and he loves finding ways to make coffee better and so i hope you enjoyed that episode too if you haven't done it already and this is the part where people's eyes glaze over and they look to like skip forward 30 seconds but I really need you to do this for me. Go and subscribe. We would love for you to do that. We would love for you to leave us a review. I personally read every single review. If you want us to talk about something specific coming up, or even if you are somebody or you know somebody that you think would be great to come on the show, leave us a five-star review and leave it in the comments section. Again, I read all of them. Follow us on social. We're best at Instagram, but we also do the other cool stuff like Facebook and Twitter. And hey, I hope you had a good cup of coffee today. Honestly, I don't care where it came from. I just want to know that you had a good cup of coffee, and that makes me happy. All right. Love y'all. See you later, 101ers, next time on Coffee 101.